0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Moradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses on the latest on Russia's war on Ukraine, as well as Israel's strike on Iran, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners, with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind, and our very own Laura Winter, the host of The Downlink, our space podcast on the global great game for ground stations. But first, joining us is our producer, Chris Cervello, a retired United States Navy public affairs officer and co-founder of the ProVision Advisors PR firm, to discuss uh, the controversy around an internal memo that wasn't even released yet by General Mike Minahan the commander of the Air Mobility Command uh, that made headlines over the weekend uh, to underscore the urgency of his force stepping up its war fighting game Minahan said that while he hoped he was wrong he feared that war with China could come in as little as 2 years which was why it was so important for his command to get its head back into a war fighting mindset the Pentagon distanced itself from the memo saying that it was inconsistent with the department's views on China Chris, uh, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks for having me, Vaga. Uh, and now a quick word from our sponsors. Our program today is sponsored by HII. HII is the designer and operator of the U.S. Navy's live virtual constructive training enterprise, the largest LVC enterprise in the U.S. Department of Defense, HII, delivering hard stuff done right. And before we get started... Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage, Fortress Information Security. Sponsors our weekly cyber report, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications. Sponsors our command and control coverage. And our program tomorrow with United States Air Force Brigadier General Spaniard Valencia and GE Aerospace. uh, Sponsors our air and naval coverage. Chris, uh, last week, Air Force uh, Secretary Frank Kendall was the guest uh, was the inaugural guest on our Air Power podcast that I co host with uh, our very own JJ Gertler. And the secretary made clear the imperative for the force to reinvigorate its high uh, intensity warfighting culture at all levels. Um, this memo did that, uh, actually, but also clearly went a little too far. Why is it so hard for senior leaders to get the, the temperature of the porridge right? Not to have it too hot, not to have it too cold. Well, I
1: think that they lack uh, nuance, and that that's definitely the case here with, with this memo. Juxtapose the conversation that you had with Frank Kendall to this memo. Secretary Kendall It was very measured. He was able to convey to you and to the larger audience that, hey, we had to get serious about building the force for high-end competition and potential conflict um but he didn't lead off by saying that we were going to fight the Chinese in 2025 so i mean the idea that you would lead off a memo and then sort of go back to business as usual in the rest of the memo yes there there are great points you never get beyond this idea that holy cow we're going to fight the Chinese in 2025 um hey has that been run through the secretary of defense hey has that been run through Um, The chairman hasn't been run through the White House. I mean, it's just this poor staff work, lack of nuance. And in this case, what are very good points get lost in the medium and the lack of staff work uh, that the general and his staff displayed in putting this
0: memo together. You know, now we're we're talking about something which. You know, he had started and he said, look, I hope it's not true, but I fear I should point out General, anybody who knows General Minahan knows uh, he's a lean forward uh, in the saddle kind of guy. I think one of the reasons he's at AMC, and we should also point out he was Admiral Davidson's uh, deputy at indo pacom command. Uh, So so, um, somebody who's familiar with the threat, familiar with the theater, uh, and uh, obviously uh, uh, Admiral uh, Davidson made headlines when he said that we're looking at a shrinking window of deterrence uh, at the time, it's at about five years, um, that that then Long Aquilino, you know, had to distance himself from in his confirmation hearings uh, shortly, shortly thereafter. Um, some are going to misinterpret uh, this, Chris, uh, as a warning not to communicate, right? What are the important lessons uh, here so that an important leader in an important time continues to communicate uh, we all get to where we want to get to. But what are the right lessons? Because some are going to interpret this as be like the good shepherd and shut the flock up.
1: No, I mean, I, I hope that that's not the lesson, but, um, you, you know, I mean, it, this will sound very basic, but it's stay in your lane. Right. Is it the AMC commander's job to predict when we are going to go to war Um, with a potential competitor and potential adversary? I I would argue no. So if you stay in your lane and if you feel compelled to um, expand your lane or swerve outside of your lane, then do the requisite staff work. Give a heads up. By all indications, um, Secretary Kendall, um secretary austin uh the the joint staff uh you know the national security council no one was given a heads up that this was coming down the pipe um and so they didn't have an opportunity to to weigh in so you know the 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 simple answer is communicate all you want um within your lane and then when you start to get outside of your lane um look for help and 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 give people a, a heads up you know my my good friend brian mcgrath wrote uh this morning um you know that he found two faults with it one it should have been classified i i absolutely agree with that and then in in his writing he asked the question what if the chinese what if this had come to light uh, from a chinese perspective that if the chinese equivalent of the amc had written such a memo how would we react in the united states how would our allies react in the pacific and in europe Um, And so I I would encourage leaders to consider how audiences are gonna react. You had John Kirby on the show last year. Um, And you guys talked about that we are no longer able to segment audiences, that it's one large audience. And so again, a four-star general ought to know that this is going to be read not just by the folks in his command, but by the the larger US domestic audience, our allies in Europe and Asia, and, and probably most importantly in this case, our potential adversaries. So Uh, stay in your lane, do the proper staff work, and then consider what others might think about what you write. Then beyond that, communicate
0: all you can, um, but just be smart about it. Chris, thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure always having you on the program. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Faga. Joining us now is Sam Bandet of the Center for Naval and Analyses, who is also affiliated with the Center for a New American Security, who is part of the Crack Russia team at CNA. Sam, always a pleasure having you on. Hope you had a great weekend. Thanks so much, Fargo. Glad to be back. Uh, always a pleasure uh, having you on. Um, a lot of activity, um, significant combat operations uh, around uh, Bakhmut, uh, you know, questions about uh, not just the outlook there, but also for uh, Kherson. Walk us through what's going on, because right just a couple of weeks ago, everybody was feeling pretty good. Ukraine had this in the bag. Now it's a very close run thing. Both sides taking very he- heavy casualties. Where are we at the moment? Well, the
2: Russian forces are continuing heavy fighting around Bakhmut and Solidar areas. Wagner mercenaries are still fighting there. They are inching uh, forward, taking very heavy casualties. Um, the Russian forces are also fighting around Vugledar and are trying to advance there as well. So we don't really have a lot of changes since last week. The fighting is very fierce. Neither side is willing to give room to the adversary. Uh, But the uh, Russian forces, and especially Wagner, are literally throwing human waves at the Ukrainian forces. And that tactic seems to be working in some parts of that front. So we don't have major advances, but we do have very heavy fighting, and Russians are intending to grind away
0: at the Ukrainian forces inch by inch, literally meter by meter. And Obviously, the hope is that some of the heavy equipment that the uh, allies are giving Ukraine are going to make a difference, whether in uh, combat vehicles or uh, uh, fighting vehicles, tanks, uh, and um, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky making the case for longer-range munitions uh, to be able to strike um, in the rear. Uh, given how the Russians have disposed their uh, forces, um, let's talk about the marker uh, ungr- unmanned ground vehicle. Uh, Russia investing significantly, um, obviously testing capability. You, you, uh, you, you know, this goes uh, back to conversations you and I were having many years ago um, when uh, the Russians were unveiling capability uh, in Syria as well. Talk to us a little bit about what this capability means and what it will, what what change it could portend on the battlefield.
2: Well, this is one of the more interesting Russia's um, unmanned ground vehicle projects, or UGVs. This was designed over the course of years as a testing platform, as uh, you and I have both discussed, for both uh, military and civilian applications. Uh, This was a platform that was built sort of to act as a sentry, as a mobile sentry around stationary targets This was a platform built to counter numerous unmanned aerial vehicles, uh, small UAVs. And uh, as other Russian UGVs, it can carry a a, um, significant amount of weapons, including some of the anti-tank and uh, other military systems. So actually the latest is that four of the five existing marker UGVs are now heading to Ukraine to be tested by Dmitry Rogozin's uh, sars Wolves. Units and uh, his um, his allied forces. Uh, it's an interesting concept in the sense that Rogozin spoke of using Marker in two ways. Basically, one as a um, as a reconnaissance and intelligence unit. Uh, this vehicle would advance or maybe um, travel to a specific fixed location, hide behind uh, a uh, a physical obstacle, and then launch a tethered drone to the height of about four hundred feet so that this tethered drone would be able to see up to 10, 15 kilometers out. And because the drone would get all of its comms and um, energy from a tether, this configuration would make both Marker and the drone less um, susceptible to electronic warfare. And second um, version of Marker is supposed to be armed with anti-tank missiles. And Rogozin spoke about Marker's basically advancing against American Abrams and uh, Western Leopard tanks. Uh, I don't know how likely that is. Marker is a heavy UGV, but it's not that heavy. It's not that well protected. As I indicated on, uh, on Twitter, Ukrainians are going to hunt for every Russian asset, including Marker with their UAVs and, and, and other aerial assets. So uh, Rogozin wants to test both the reconnaissance intel and the military version of Marker, somewhere in the Donbass. And the question is exactly how controlled that test is going to be and uh, how successful it's going to be because previous combat test of another UGV Uran 9 in Syria was unsuccessful in the sense that it it revealed a lot of shortcomings for this type of machinery in general. So it's interesting what Rogozin is planning to do with this fairly expensive and uh, fairly rare UGV, again, for of the five existing vehicles are heading to Ukraine, both in tracked and wheeled formations. But if we kind of zoom out, this is a military pattern, not just in Russia and Ukraine, but across other militaries, United States, United Kingdom, Western Europe, China, Israel, and um, Turkey and many other countries are working on similar technology for combat. And they're trying to figure out how successful this technology can be, how it can best assist the forces, how it can be part of combined arms formations and mixed formations. What's the level of maintenance that's required? uh, What is the extent to which these vehicles can truly be expendable in combat? Because if it's an expensive UGV and it gets damaged and there's pressure to bring it back for repairs... Well, who's going to do it? It's going to fall on the shoulders of soldiers. So why then send humans to assist a robot? Because the robot is supposed to be replacing these uh, soldiers in dangerous missions in the first place. So more right. questions and answers right now, but it uh, seems like Russians and Dmitry Rogozin especially are trying to push this testing and evaluation. Uh, what's interesting about Rogozin is that, of course, this is part of his sort of um, evolution from um, a russian bureaucrat with a um, sketchy reputation to someone who is on the front lines um, he is wearing military fatigues he's getting injured at the front he's there with the soldiers he's getting his hands dirty he's pushing military technology that uh, his allies are supposed to be using so this is kind of a way for him to rehabilitate his image partially and him pushing the testing and evaluation of some of the most advanced military technology is aligned with his earlier promises that he's going to try and facilitate this type of tech to the front line and maybe bypass a lot of bureaucratic hurdles that exist still within the Russian MLD. Uh,
0: and, uh, should, uh, you know, the idea of tethered uh, UAVs, uh, is not necessarily a new idea. It solves power problems. It allows things to stay persistently. And again, from a comms link standpoint, uh, it makes a very big difference uh, as, as well. Um, let's, uh, we've got about a minute uh, or so left. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the battle between the Wagner Group's uh, Yevgeny Progoshin, uh and Igor Gherkin, also known as uh, Igor Strokov.
2: Well, this is uh, one of the more amusing uh, contests, which is unfolding on Telegram. Basically, Strelkov remains one of the few people who is publicly criticizing Wagner tactics as well as some of the MOD tactics in general. And uh, he criticized Wagner's tactics in, in the Donbass as well. Rygorzhin had none of that and basically called him out publicly saying if Strelkov wants to be a man, uh, he should sign up with Wagner units and he should fight with Wagner. Uh, on the front lines of Donbass and prove how much of a man he really is. Strelkov, of course, uh, tried to kind of, he kind of tried to back away from that argument saying he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't trust Wagner. Uh, Prigozhin pushed further, basically calling Strelkov's manhood into question. Right. Strelkov was retorting back. And <laughs> what's more amusing is that a lot of people are now saying that Strelkov wasn't as successful in 2014 In 2015, that he actually retreated from a lot of the combat, that he fled some of the combat in the face of advancing Ukrainian forces. That's when uh, Russian military tried to assist its its Donetsk and Lugansk units um, in gaining independence uh, from Ukraine. So uh, Strokov was influential there as one of the sort of PR figures pushing for...
0: He was the, and he is the defense minister of the Donetsk People's Republic, uh, and last uh, November was found guilty of the murder of 298 people on Malaysia Airlines Flight 17, right? That was uh, shot down uh, in August of 2014.
2: Prigorshin is trying to make sure that his fighters and his efforts face no challenge and no contest in Russia. As some of the criminals that he recruited for the fight are returning to Russia, uh, supposedly rehabilitated and ready to integrate into the uh, civilian society. A lot of people aren't happy about that because these were uh, men guilty of harsh crimes. And uh, Prigozhin wants to make sure that it becomes a criminal offense to criticize his fighters. So he wants to leave no challenge, not only to his tactics in the Donbass, but also in Russia proper. And Strelkov stepping forward and using his telegram perch with almost 800,000 subscribers calling him out, is a
0: challenge of sorts. And of course, um, Gorshin did it the only way he knew how. I always uh, am fascinated by Russian interspecies uh, warfare. And very briefly, uh, Sam, it looks like Israel did strike uh, Iran uh, over the weekend. Uh, A lot of headlines, you know, uh, some people were trying to characterize it as a start of an air campaign, uh, but it did look like back-to-back strikes, and they did involve unmanned systems. What is it we know Uh, So far about what was involved and and what the targets were. Well, we're still getting information,
2: but we know that a key military facility in Isfahan was attacked multiple times in one night. It looks like the attack was carried out by relatively small UAVs. Uh, Iran has uh, gathered the uh, remnants of some of these drones and put it on display. It looks like these drones may have been launched from inside the country. It looks like they may have been short range. Uh, UAVs. What's interesting is that Iran is saying that not much damage was inflicted on its facilities. There's conflicting reports about that. But one of the sites that was attacked is actually covered by an iron mesh, similar to some of the iron meshes or steel meshes or, or even wire meshes that we're seeing, for example, on armored vehicles, on tanks to prevent um. UAVs and uh, loading munitions from breaching these defenses. In fact, there's a picture of two Russia's Lancet drones that were caught in such a net above a, a Ukrainian military vehicle. So it looks like Iranians actually dressed an entire building in this iron mesh to prevent these smaller drones or maybe loading munitions from actually getting through. And it looked like some of those drones may have actually exploded against that defense. And so This raises a lot of questions about a true extent of counter UAV defenses. What does that have to involve? And Iranians are actually taking it a step further beyond just the air defenses, beyond electronic warfare, beyond early warning radars, to actually uh, developing a physical mesh-like defense to try and sort of
0: prevent the uavs from breaching through basically at the last mile sam uh thanks very much as always for joining us absolute pleasure having you on thanks very much for the update thank you and joining us now is our very own contributing editor laura winter uh who hosts the weekly downlink podcast a must for anybody who's interested in a thoughtful look at all things space laura a pleasure having you on the program thanks for joining us
3: Thank you, Vago. It's great to be here.
0: Uh, an absolute pleasure. You do uh, terrific work uh, each week and you uh, have produced uh, a series, two programs uh, on uh, the Great Power Ground Game, as you uh, joke uh, about uh, yeah. four ground stations, uh, both in the high north. Uh, Svalbard, where I've been honored to visit, uh, and that great power game was playing out with uh, what China wanted to do, uh, as well as in uh, South America. Tell the audience a little bit about the series and why it's so important.
3: Well, it's important because, see, space suffers from the problem of being overhead, which is already out of sight and therefore out of mind. And when we do think about space, we are just hardwired. It's in our DNA. We're just simply drawn like moths to fiery launches. And who's launching what? And who's acquiring what for a launch? And well, who doesn't like a good launch, right? But really, it doesn't matter.
0: <laughs> I just, I'm going to say for the record, we all love uh, a We all do, but,
3: exactly. But, but, the, but, but the logo it,
0: for the downlink is a groundlink station, right? So yes. ultimately, it's about the ground.
3: And that's right, because it doesn't matter what you launch on whatever rocket if the ground segment isn't sorted out and actually secure. And I'm talking defended here. We're talking electronic warfare attack. We're talking cyber attack, even physical attack. And that's what we cover in part one. Those critical ground stations in the high north that's in or near the Arctic Circle, that's where the Department of Defense and not just the Space Force, but also NATO and partners, they depend on these ground stations for intelligence gathering Gathering secure communications and data relays to and from the European continent. And there's all kinds of possible mischief. And guess what? Many of these ground stations are commercially owned and managed. And my guests, Greg Falco and Nicola Bocchetti, they're from the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab. And they say that there isn't nearly enough thought being put into adequately securing those ground stations. So that's part one. Now, part two, which just dropped today. It's about China's ground station footprint below the equator in South America. And we here in the United States, ever since the Monroe Doctrine, you know, we love to think of South America as our sphere of influence, as if it's simply settled, but it's not. So China has access to or wholly runs about a dozen ground stations in Argentina, Bolivia, Brazil, and well, Venezuela. Surprise, surprise. And as you can imagine, there's little insight into what these ground stations are actually being used for. I mean, sure, they're likely used for telemetry, tracking and command signals or TT&C to their spacecraft near and far. But they can also receive signals from everything in their line of sight. They could be used for eavesdropping or tracking U.S. space assets. And the Chinese, while they they just love to advertise that such and such is non-military, you know, but there's really no transparency. And my guests in part two, which are Matthew Funioli and Brian Hart of CSIS, they're both, uh, you know, They've tried to do their research with an open mind, but even they call these ground stations black boxes. And that's concerned military officials here in the US and annoyed some folks in those nations that host these ground stations because it starts becoming a question of sovereignty, like knowing what's happening on your own land. So that's what's on the downlink.
0: Laura, thanks very much. And I urge the audience to tune in, not just to these two uh, great programs, but a great program uh, every single week. Keep up uh, the great work. Thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thank you, Vago.
0: And joining me now is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners, who joins us every Monday to discuss the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, I hope you guys had a great weekend and thanks for joining us again. Always a pleasure, Vago. Byron, a lot to discuss here and unfortunately don't have as much time as we normally do. Uh, and I want to get to earnings uh, in a second, as well as uh, Rosa Deloro's or the response to Rosa DeLauro's letter. Obviously, she's the ranking member on House appropriations. Uh, let's start with the Russo-Ukraine war uh, in uh, one of your many great notes over the week and the one over the weekend you, note, you noted about sort of reconsidering assumptions. And uh, we just heard from Sam Bendett uh, as well in terms of the Russian offensive. How do you, it is, how is it you think we should be thinking about where we are right now and where we're going?
4: Well, I think, look, you know, the the moves last week, the week before on main battle tanks are significant, but they're going to take time. Um, I'm still skeptical that Russia is going to launch a massive, uh, decisive offensive here. Uh, You know, the activity last week in in Ukraine, there was a pickup in uh, some of their artillery fires, but you know, the weather is still a little iffy. Um, I'm skeptical that Russia has the capacity to, uh, you know, again recapture or capture territory uh, that they've occupied in Ukraine. So we'll see. And the tanks themselves, you know, they're, they're a component of Ukrainian military capability. It's a positive step for Ukraine, but there aren't a lot of them. It's going to take time to train people tanks in and of their own right are decisive and yet less used with combined arms and well-trained troops. So um, I'm thinking increasingly that this is going to be something that could extend into 2024. Uh, We'll really kind of have to wait and see to what the Ukrainians are capable of doing this summer, but um, this is going to go on for a while. And I think the other part I make is, you know, it kind of riffs off um the, the good work that the Royal United Services Institute's been doing on this subject. But I don't think you're seeing Russia's um industry being brought to its knees. I mean, they're they're still able to do things here, and I would not underestimate though. I think as someone else pointed out, you know, the bear still has claws. Uh
0: exactly. And the biggest mistake you can make is make your enemy 10 feet tall or then assume that they're three feet tall and they end up uh, surprising you uh, on either one of those uh, metrics. Um, Speaking of surprise, uh, everybody is focused on the meeting uh, between uh, President Biden and uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy about the outlook for spending and a, and a debt ceiling increase. But there was a very interesting letter uh, from Rosa DeLoro and the responses to it. Talk to us about the responses and what do you find uh, is so interesting about it. well, yeah, well I've, Tell I've, the audience about her question and then the response. Well,
4: her, her she sent this in mid-January to different federal agencies and department heads. And basically, you know, hey, if you're going to. If, if your budget is cut to fiscal 22 levels in FY24, what does that do to you? Um, what does that mean? And I think, I, I keep saying this, I mean, it's fine to have these budget discussions in the abstract, but when it really comes down to what programs are going to be cut, um, where are you going to make the, these spending cuts, it's tough. And That's where I think, you know, the lightning rods start popping up. And you know, we saw that even over the weekend. It's like, well, is defense on the table or off the table? Are you including mandatory spending? Are you not including mandatory spending? So it's still, I have zero expectation that there's going to be a a big breakthrough from the meeting between Speaker McCarthy and President Biden. I think if anything, that's just gonna, you know, they're gonna be shouting at each other across the chasm. Of their different views over the debt ceiling and uh, discretionary and mandatory spending. So, but I think the Deloro, the responses to Deloro's level letters, are going to add another element to this, which is you're going to start to see the whites in the eyes of where these cuts could fall and what they mean, and and that's going to be uh, a really interesting element to add to this whole debate over federal spending.
0: Uh, indeed. So, how are you? Well, how are you? You know, gaming it uh, now. Right? How do you think this is going to fall out at this point? You're very um, I, good at percentage odds on, yeah, I mean, we look,
4: I think it's a given, you know, Michael talked about this a little bit in your Friday show. you know the, the the worst outcome would be, well, we're going to extend the debt ceiling until September 30th. And then we'll have a federal shutdown at the same time we've we you know, hit the debt ceiling. Limit. I, I don't know. I mean, I think we're absolutely going to start fiscal year 2024 with a continuing resolution. I I think there's going to be a lot of kind of peering over the edge of the cliff on the debt ceiling, but, but Congress is going to jump on it. Um, it's just going to be, you know, this is going to be what we're going to be talking about uh, for a while here. Defense stocks didn't seem to be particularly bothered by it. Um, right. You know they they had started off the year on a on a weak foot, but certainly during the earnings calls last week, you did not hear management say, you know, we're hunkering down, we're expecting the worst out of Congress. I mean, if anything, the opposite was the case, right? Which is, the world's a dangerous place. You know, <laughs> there, there's good reason to be spending spending uh, money here.
0: Uh, and uh, we we do have uh, some sense uh, again, some reporting that suggests. Uh, the administration is going to ask for $30 billion uh, more uh, in uh, its spending package. And, and that's what uh, you know we heard from Ron on, on yesterday's program, that that might be a little bit of what uh, management was uh, transmitting. Speaking of management, and you listened to these uh, earnings calls, uh, and it was a busy earnings season. Uh, and thank God I'm not reporting on it uh, <laughs> the way that I used to when you have to write like six stories uh, in, in a couple of hours. Um, walk us through... What you thought was most interesting in terms of what the companies reported?
4: Well, I think it's just that Fogo. You know, the, for all the the issues of inflation and cost pressure, you know, you have to remember a lot of these um, operating margins that are reported by companies are they're, they're really reflecting a, a view of the future. Companies are using percentage uh, completion contract. I don't want to go into the nuances, but you really didn't see major margin misses and you know guidance for for the coming year for 2023 was pretty acceptable there are still some exceptions uh i, I think there's a you know a range of how companies are dealing with supply chain or supply network and and um, hiring employees um but you know overall i thought it was it was an okay Earnings period, I think the, you know, the interesting thing is still, you know, a lot of the work that's going to come as a result of Russia, Ukraine, and higher defense spending, it's 2024, 25, and 26. And, you know, the the guidance, particularly the sales guidance for 2023, um, you know, I don't don't think there were major surprises there. There weren't upward revisions to expectations, but um, this, is, this is a long cycle business, so maybe that's something that got hammered home by these uh, results last week. And of course, and, the large companies continue to buy a lot of stock back. Right. Um, so, you know, we're still back to me, which are pretty, pretty unexciting capital
0: employment strategies. And uh, week ahead, uh, what are you watching and what should the audience be paying attention to in the coming week?
4: Uh, the Defense Innovation Board is going to hold a public meeting on February 1st. That'll be interesting to talk about, you know, kind of their readouts, and reports on the Strategic Capital Fund. Um, there are a couple of events on Russian sanctions at Atlantic Council. German Marshall Fund is doing an event on how winter is shaping the war in Ukraine. Um, there is a House Energy and Commerce Committee hearing on um the state of the satellite marketplace. I don't think witnesses had been announced uh, at least the last time I looked about two hours ago for that, that hearing that's on February 2nd, but that obviously matters to defense too. And then of course we still have not as, not as many companies, but a number of of contractors reporting earnings this week.
0: And really briefly uh, before we go, our mutual friend, Eric tuning uh, in what is big news uh, is leaving McKinsey where he spent many uh, years uh, separated by a stint at the Pentagon where he was industrial policy chief as well as chief of staff uh, to uh, defense secretary. Esper uh, is uh, leaving McKinsey to join HII as executive vice president for strategy and development. Just your sense on what you think the move means.
4: I think it's a very important move for Huntington Ingalls because I think first, Eric brings you know, a very interesting and broad perspective to the defense sector Because of his service in the Department of Defense, but also because what he's seen at McKinsey. And I think, you know, I particularly call out his work on supply chain or supply networks when he was at DOD. And that's obviously a factor not just for Huntington Ingalls, but for for the entire sector. But I think for Huntington Ingalls, you know, okay, people always categorize them. They're a shipbuilder, they're a shipbuilder, but they do have a technical services branch. And, you know, they made some acquisitions in that area where they're really trying to stitch a lot of this stuff together. So I think he's going to be a very important and key addition for Huntington Eagles. And I look forward to the work he's going to do in the future.
0: Uh, Indeed. Uh, Certainly a very impressive talent. And we wish him, uh, even though he is a West Point grad, uh, and a former army officer, fair winds and following seas in his new assignment. Uh, and, you know, I was just going to also point out, right, the unmanned capability the company has amassed as well. So it's going to be interesting, you know, and, and the, as you said, technical, uh, as well as, you know, building up capabilities on cyber AI and a number of other areas. And so It's, 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 it's going to be
4: interesting, you know, every year at the army Navy game, which hat he wears.
0: <laughs> or whether or not he gets exchanged uh, in the in the in the middle of the game, that's going to be an interesting question. Byron, thanks very much. Always a pleasure having you on.
4: Thanks, Fargo.